Let's take a moment and uh, pray a prayer of blessing for the moms here this morning. Father, I pray that you would give encouragement and strength and grace and wisdom uh, that m- the moms would, who are part of our church family would continue to reflect you through the way that they love and nurture us. So we thank you today and pray for your blessing um, on our moms. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, I see that there are a lot of Messiah students with us today, which I think is great because I know you guys are in the middle of finals. And what better place to be than in church to pray your way through (laughs) finals? Talk to these guys sitting right down front. I said, way to go. It's a good place to be when you're concerned about finals. Well, if you open up your outlines, you'll see there's a definition of worship that we looked at last week. And the definition is this, worship is our response to God for who he is and for what he's done expressed in and by the things that we say and the way that we live. Let me read that one more time. Worship is our response to God for who he is and what he's done expressed in and by the things that we say and the way that we live. And last week we learned that God designed us to be drawn to him, to worship him. And we talked about standing in the heights of his grandeur and yet being present in the depths of his intimacy with each of us. And last week, if you were here, you remember we worshipped with the whales and the stars, and wasn't that just an amazing experience? If you weren't here, you're you're like, what is he talking about? But it was a great week last week. We had a beautiful time in worship together. And this week, we're going to talk about your sin and your depravity and your worship of idols. Who's excited, huh? (laughs) Uh, I do hope... uh, Uh, that by the end of the day, we're going to take communion together and you're really going to understand the full measure of God's love for us and uh, that your heart will be engaged to worship him maybe on a deeper level uh, than when you came in today. So we're naturally worshipers. We're created to worship. If we don't worship Almighty God, then we're going to find something else to worship. And when God was laying out his expectations for us, when he was laying out his expectations for his people, to talk to us about what it would mean to be in a relationship with him. He gave 10 commandments. He did this with his people. He said, here's some parameters. Here's some understanding of what it means to be in a relationship with me. And I want you to, we're going to look at just the first two. They're in your outline together this morning. Just the first two commands that come from Exodus chapter 20 as God's instructing us about how to be in relationship with him. This is what he says. You shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment number one. And then it goes on to commandment number two. And it says, you shall make for yourself, an, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. And then it goes on in the next verse as a part of that second command to say, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. So the first two commands speak directly to the issue of our worship of God and uh, to this issue of idols. God says, number one, you'll have no other gods. He says, number two, no idols. And then he says, I really mean it. <laughs> I don't want you to give attention or love to anything else more than me. This is my heart for you to be in relationship with me. So what does God expect uh, from us? Why is he so explicit when it comes to worshiping idols? Well, a couple of things. First, God loves us so much so much. And it's it's his desire to be in relationship with us, to be in a monogamous relationship with us. 
Because worshiping him connects us to him as our source of life. If we're worshiping other things, then we're connected to them as our source of life. But if we worship Almighty God, then we're connected in a monogamous relationship with him and we're dependent on him as the source of everything. So God's question or questions for us are really these. He says, what will you give your resources to and where will you find significance? What will you give your resources to, your love, your attention, your, your, your resources, and what will cause you then to find significance? Where will you get that from? So God knew that we, we would struggle with idols. He knew this from the beginning, and that's why he put them right at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. And today he invites us to return to him as our source. He invites us to return our worship back to him and to find uh, all that we need in life from him. There are two questions that uh, we need to answer in order to help us tear down idols and return our worship to God or to focus our worship on him. And they're in your outline. The first is this. What is an idol? What is an idol? Well, every society has its idols and its rituals and its shrines and places where sacrifices have to be made in order to secure the blessings of the good life and to ward off disaster. Let's watch an example of this together. I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. Well, you would think they were crazy if you didn't understand their culture and their religion. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols, and they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted, they danced, they, they made sacrifices to their idols. They had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. You don't really relate, do you? Let's try it again. I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols, and they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted. They danced. They, they made sacrifices to their idols. They had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. Idol worship. It's not just about golden calves anymore. Hard on football. I see many of you are giving me a scowl. Understand. Don't go there. Don't go there. But they could have chosen a lot of things. They could have chosen a, a career, a relationship, a car, or any other prized possession for that matter that they could have made a very similar video about. And our human hearts do this. We often take good things like these and we ultimately turn them into things of worship. They're gifts from God to us, but if they take a wrong place in our lives, they end up being something that draws us away from God instead of taking us, pointing us towards him when they elevate too highly in our lives. And by the way, uh, that guy must be our featured actor of the week. Did any of you notice? Does he go to church here? I don't, I'm not sure. Uh, but idols have been a, long, uh, a long-standing problem for humanity. And God knew this. So I want you to look at how the problem of idols was described in the first, first century by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul said this. He said, They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshipped and served the things God created 
Would you underline that? They worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. There's nothing wrong with the things that God created. He created amazing things for us. But they take a wrong place in our lives and they become the object, objects of our worship instead of God himself. And in our hearts, we can easily deify those good things that God has given us, but then we make them the center of our lives. We, get, we try to take from them significance and security. We try to take our, our fulfillment from those things and they never, they never seem to, to uh, be able to satisfy us. So what is an idol? I'm going to define, this is a long definition of idol. You can try to write it down, but you probably won't get it. Uh, this is my definition. What is an idol? An idol is anything more important to you than God. An idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. An idol is anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol, thing is, an idol is anything so central to your life that if you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol is anything that has such controlling position in your heart that you spend most of your passion and energy on it without a second thought. An idol is anything that you find fundamental to your happiness, meaning, and identity. If any of those things line up with something that's present in your life that you give your worship and time and attention to, it might be an idol for you. And here's the biggest danger when it comes to idols. They enslave us. Idols enslave us. And idol worship worshipers do three things to become enslaved. We first of all fall in love with our idol and then we, we put our trust and our hope and our emotion into our idol and then we obey our idol in that we follow it whatever path it takes us down. Wherever it leads us, we just follow down that path and this gives idols power over us. They become our leaders. They become our Lord they become masters over our hearts and minds. So tearing down an idol is a pretty big deal. Tearing down an idol means that you give it up, at least in your heart, you give it up. Um, about, about the time that Daybreak got started, almost 14 years ago, um, I kind of had an aha moment in my spiritual life. Now, I had been in ministry uh, almost seven years prior to that. I was 22 when I started in full-time ministry, and I was single at the time, so I just spent all my time at the church. What did I have to go home to, you know? An empty apartment. So, um, and you know why I spent all my time there. It's because I was making 13 grand a year. So, you know, I had to earn it. <laughs> I wish I was kidding about that. <laughs> Full time making 13 grand a year. In the middle of that year, I had to go to the leadership team of the, that church at the time and confess that I was unable to survive. <laughs> Uh, they gave me a raise when I finally got married. Had I known that, I would have gotten married sooner. <laughs> but I started in the ministry when I was 22, just spent every night, every moment I had at the church. I was in youth ministry, and I did worship ministries and other things. And why not? Spent all my time at the church. I got married when I was 25. I had my first child when I turned 27. And uh, it was right about then. We started Daybreak when I was 29. Uh, about seven years into ministry, daybreak was, for me, daybreak was planted. And so I had developed a lot of patterns that were kind of tough on my marriage and on my family. And then we were going into this new church plant that I was very excited about and felt very committed to. And the aha moment for me when I was 29, it was after um, my firstborn was about two years old. 
was that work came before my wife and my child, if I was honest. Like that had been my paradigm, and I just had to be honest about it. And that work also came before my relationship with God, which might seem really weird when you think that you're a pastor, but doing ministry was before my own personal relationship with God. And when the rubber finally hit the road and I understood that this was my life, um, I remember one time Pastor Joel and I, uh, we had worked together years before Daybreak got started, and then he went and planted a church in New York. And then when we started Daybreak, we started uh, the church together and uh, with many of you. And I remember Pastor Joel had this little plaque hanging in his office. It was a little postcard that he had made, and then someone made it into a plaque for him. And it said this. On the top of it, it said, Beloved child of God. And then right underneath that, it said, Husband to one, father to three, pastor to some, and Joel to the rest. And I realized that I was trying to be a pastor to the whole world. (laughs) I had lost my identity as a beloved child of God and that my identity as a father and as a husband was taking a back seat to my identity in my job and in my ministry. And I decided at that point that I wanted to, I no longer wanted to rely on ministry to fulfill me. Like I was no longer going to make ministry my idol and my job my idol and take all of my fulfillment and satisfaction from ministry. Now, it took a long time for me to turn that around (laughs) once I decided that. Uh, But I can tell you today, I have a much healthier perspective. I don't even care if I show up here. i got to be honest. No, (laughs) I'm totally kidding. Uh, (laughs) But I love ministry more than ever before now because my perspective on it is way healthier than it used to be. So once you stop relying on something to fulfill you, it loses its power to control you. And we have to come to the place where we can truly say, because I love God, I can live without whatever my idol is. I could live without it because of my love for God. You fill in the blank. But there will always be other loves that creep into our hearts, and we need to pay attention to what we give our resources to and what we're taking our significance from. And that's why we have to continually ask ourselves this question. It's the next question in your outline. What is my idol? What is my idol currently? Scripture records three areas of desire that are the root of all sin and idol worship that the Bible talks about, and we're going to look at them today. They appear in a number of places. They appear in the Garden of Eden. You see them there. They appear in the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, and they also appear in 1 John chapter 2. And today we're going to use 1 John chapter 2 as our primary text, so you can either look at it in your outline, you can open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2 if you would like and follow along. But we're really only going to look at one uh, or two verses from 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to see what God offers us to replace the idols that are in our life. What does he offer us in order for us to replace them so that we're not focused on them and miss out on intimacy with him? And as we go through them today, I want, to just, I want you to consider which of these three get more attention in your life. Which of these three idols could possibly be objects of worship for you or are dangerous areas for you that you need to guard against so that they don't become idols for you. And let's read 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 together, okay? Together, here we go. <laughs> for the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. 
And you'll, uh, if you read this in the King James Version, it actually talks, of it, talks about it as the lust of the flesh, uh, the lust of the eyes, and then the pride of life. And maybe you've heard that before. But this passage that, that we're going to dig into today really holds a lot of significance in where we place our worship. So the first uh, point in your outline is this. I refuse to worship idols by replacing, number one, lust and romance with intimacy and honesty. I replace lust and romance with intimacy and honesty. And it, in 1 John, it's called the craving. He calls it the craving for physical pleasure or the lust of the flesh. And it's also known as hedonism. H-E-D-O-N-I-S-M. Hedonism. It's the temptation to be consumed with meeting your own felt needs. The temptation to be consumed with meeting your own felt needs. And all of our music and art and media calls us to put our hope and our significance and our acceptance into romance or into physical intimacy or physical closeness with someone. Again, what are romance and sex? They're gifts from God, aren't they? They're good gifts from God. But when they're elevated to a higher place in our heart, and when we focus solely on getting our needs met from them, then they become idols that have the potential to destroy us and to destroy our lives. Have you ever noticed that the same songs that we hear, uh, love songs that call us to put all of our hope and all of our expectation, all of our confidence in uh, some romantic, lustful, sexual relationship, also at the same time tell a story of brokenness? and disillusionment that comes from, that, from making them idols in our life, especially if it's a country song, huh? Then they really play out the other side of that. But no, it's the same song. In one moment, they're telling you in a song, this is where all my hope is. And in the next moment, they're talking about the brokenness that comes from putting your hope in that thing. Bruce Marshall is a guy who wrote a book called The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith. And he wrote this book in 1946. It was a, a popular book at the time. And in the book, he's, he, he's writing about a conversation that he was having on a street with a prostitute. And she was arguing this. She was arguing that all religion is is a substitute for sex because sex is really what everybody wants. She was saying that sex is the end game. That's the goal of everyone. And she said, religion, you're, you're saying, uh, what, what you don't know is that religion is just a substitute for sex. She had made sex Uh, her idol, or the place where she worshipped. And Bruce Marshall responds in this way, and I love this this quote. Listen closely. He says, Bodies are rarely perfect. They soon grow old and sag, and always the contemplation of them, even at their best, is a poor substitute for walking with God as a friend. Listen to this. He says, I prefer to believe that sex is a substitute for religion and for, for the love that God can bring And that the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Sex is a substitute for a meaningful relationship with God. Lust, sex, and romance have been set up as a primary source of fulfillment in our culture today. And the problem is that making an idol out of lust or romance might lead to letting someone exploit you. It might lead to letting someone abuse you. Or you might become someone who exploits or abuses others in that way. It might make you betray other allegiances or break promises or violate healthy boundaries in your life. We often look to sex and romance to give us some kind of sense of transcendence, uh, meaning and intimacy that we can really only get from a relationship with God. So we end up being consumed with wanting to feel good through having our own needs met. And the problem is, at the pace that we run today, 
When we're tired and alone, the desire grows even stronger for us. So it has power as an idol to show up in different ways in our life. We can become controlled by it through an addiction to pornography or through regularly hooking up with different people. Or we can become controlled by it by avoiding it out of bitterness and pain and regret. And it can control us in a different way. Or we can get lost in a fantasy world of romance and miss out on the real relationships that God has given to us to nurture in our lives. Real relationships are harder work than fantasy relationships. Why was the book Fifty Shades of Grey so popular in our culture? Why is it such a popular book or why is it so talked about? I think it's talked about because people want a way to feel good instantly. They want a a way to substitute, uh, settle for a cheap substitute. And so why even talk about doing the harder work of of really understanding real intimacy when you can have a, a cheap substitute? People love to substitute temporary satisfaction and pleasure for what is real and lasting and the intimacy that God provides for us. It's just the truth. We all are guilty of it in this room, me included. Not one of us doesn't run to something in our moment of need that will give us a temporary feel-good. We look for it all the time instead of turning to God and saying, God, what do you have for me that's eternal? What do you have for me that's lasting? What have you provided for me? So trying to fill your hearts with the things that God created instead of with God himself, always leads to disappointments and some kind of disillusional behavior in your life, whether that's blame or shame or bitterness. Whenever you try to substitute the created for the creator, that's what you're going to be left with. So God gives us a way to replace lust and romance's power over us through intimacy and through honesty. And whenever we're turning from a sin or an idol, we always have to start with repentance. When you're trying to make a turn from sin in your life or you're trying to make a turn from something that you've misplaced your worship with, you have to begin with repentance. And that's admitting that this idol has power over you. And then you have to be broken over the damage that it's caused to you and the damage that it's caused to others. And then you have to stop looking to that idol, in this case to lust or romance, as a a source for your life. You have to say, I'm not going to look that direction anymore. And when we repent of putting our trust in this idol, God can begin the process that he does in us, the healing work that he does in us of restoring true intimacy with others in our relationships. Because lust and romance no longer have a grip on us. And when they lose their grip on us, then we're able to start to allow God to restore intimacy with him as well. James chapter 4 verse 8 says, come near to God and he, he will come near to you. And I want you to be reassured that God wants a genuine friendship with you and I. He wants a deep, deep relationship with us. He's not looking for a surface distance relationship with you. That's not the way he designed us. He designed us to have an intimate, close relationship with him. And it's like God is saying, hey, I'm the source, okay? Don't run to anything else. And I want to challenge you to make that your anthem this summer. You can write this down. God is my source. I will not run to anything else. Write it down. Make that your theme this summer. God is my source. He is the source of my life. I will not run to anything else other than God. I won't do it. Whenever you feel tempted, whenever you feel empty, whenever you feel alone, whenever you want to cheat and go for the quick momentary satisfaction, instead of turning your heart to God and letting him fill you in a meaningful way, just remember your theme this summer, God, you are my source. I won't run to anything 
other than you. And obviously, when you spend time in God's word, when you're rooted in scripture and journaling and prayer and quiet time, and you're taking Sabbath rest so you're not crazy all the time, so you're just not running and empty and and emotional and tired, when you do those things, you put yourself in a strong position to allow God to remain the source of your life. The Bible also says that true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And when we replace this idol, that we become honest with God about our desire to put him first in our life, then there is no hidden secretive behavior or thoughts as if God doesn't know what our behaviors and thoughts are anyway. There are no more secrets between us and God. And when we're open and honest with God, then we're able to be open and honest with each other. And a great action that you might want to take this summer if you are caught up uh, in worshiping this idol of, of romance or lust and, and your mind just goes there whenever you need an escape, a great thing you might want to do is admit your struggle to a few people who are close to you. Find a place, this, uh, a group of a few people that you can meet with regularly, whether that's weekly or monthly. Just you get together with and you're honest about what you're going through. Ask them to pray for you and to encourage you to seek God instead of seeking some substitute um, fantasy or, or, or uh, pleasure instead. And I want to encourage you to find those people in your life who will speak God's encouragement to you and point you back to him as your source for life. So God's made it possible to get rid of this uh, idol of lust and romance by replacing it with true intimacy and with honesty. And the second point is this. I refuse to worship idols by replacing greed and possessions with generosity and simplicity. Greed and possessions with generosity and simplicity. Again, this, the verse from 1 John 2.16. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, and then this next part, a craving for everything we see and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, they're from the world. You know, we all like to have our stuff, and our possessions, again, are often a great gift from God to us, for us to enjoy, for us to fully uh, um, experience and to share with others as well. But again, the problem with our possessions only comes in when we elevate them to a place where they begin to receive all of our focus and attention. And maybe we want out of them our security or our safety, or we want to make an impression on other people by what we have. So then we begin to put our trust in this idol. These things that God has given us then end up becoming a detour from us depending on God, and they make us greedy in life. And the problem is this. I bet if I asked this morning, how many of you would say that you're greedy? Nobody would want to admit to that. I mean, honestly, some of you might think, yeah, I am kind of greedy, but you probably wouldn't raise your hand and want to confess that. And as a pastor, I've had people come in and admit all kinds of sins to me and ask for help with different things that they're struggling with. But rarely does anyone come in and say, I spend way too much money on myself. I have too much. Greed is really tearing my life apart. I can only think of a couple conversations that someone has initiated with me that even get in that ballpark uh, over the years. Uh, Lyndon Johnson said this, uh, when someone asked him how much Texas farmland would satisfy him because he owned quite a bit of it, this is what he said. He said, all I want is all I've got plus all that borders it. (laughs) All I want is all that I have plus everything that borders it. It's interesting. The God of greed is never satisfied. And that's what the Bible's talking about here. It's the lust of the eyes. I see it and I want it. And it's also called materialism. And it's the temptation to have, to stockpile things, to be consumed with having something and then having more. 
And I don't know if you know this, but Jesus actually warns people far more about greed than he even does about sexuality in Scripture. In Luke 12, 15, he says, Be on your guard against every form of greed. Greed is an idol within us that whispers to our heart, you need to have more than you have. You hear that whisper, you need or you ought to have more than you have. And greed is sneaky in some ways because it tells us that we have to have something and that we can't live without it. But when we get it then, it actually distracts us from God rather than point us to him. So we think of these things as, well, when I get satisfied, when I have what I need, then I won't be worried all the time and I'll be more able to focus on God more. And the truth is that those things, the more that we have, the more they pull our attention away from God and become an idol for us. You know, early on in our marriage, we didn't have much, my wife and I. And so my wife came up with her own definition of contentment. I don't know where she got this, but we quoted it often in our house. And that's learning to appreciate something without having to have it. And so when our car was old and falling apart and needing repair and we passed someone in the very nice car, we would just appreciate their very nice car and not think about having to have it ourselves. When we would pass someone else's house and we were in a small apartment that was never finished and remodeled, there were always projects happening, and we'd go to someone's nice home and then we'd appreciate their home without having to have it, or at least that's what we worked hard at doing. And uh, this was fine until, um, you know, we got further along and had a lot of kids, and then we started watching reruns of The Brady Bunch, and they have Alice who is their housekeeper and maid and cooks all their meals and does all their laundry and seems to just do everything. And then my wife could no longer appreciate what someone else had uh, without having to have it. We, we had to have an Alice, but we still don't. Uh, Luke 16, 13 says, you cannot serve both God and money. And Jesus is identifying that greed and possessions can become an idol that compete for our worship of God. And God tells us to replace greed and possessions with two things, simplicity and generosity. Simplicity and generosity. So let's think about going back and repenting again about our greed and about our desire for possessions. How do we do that? Truly repenting of greed means looking to God for our safety, for our security, and for our image. All of those things have to come from him. So we replace greed by learning to live simply and generously. And the problem with having too many possessions is this. It's complexity in our lives. Matthew 19, 24, and 25 say that it's easier for um, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to explain that a little bit for you. Uh, First of all, um, Jesus never bashed the rich. He always encouraged the rich because many people have learned how to take their wealth and to be very generous with it. And God uses that for his kingdom purposes. But Jesus was saying in this place, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter God's kingdom. And I want to give you, there's two things Jesus could have been referring to. He could have actually been referring to a camel going through the eye of a needle because they did have needles in that time and the needles did have eyes. So maybe he was being literal there. But they also did something at that particular time when they had temples and and the synagogues and the churches that they would build at the time, um, when someone would come in and conquer this city, one of the first things they'd do when the enemy would ride in is they'd ride right into the temples and they'd torch and knock down the places of worship in the city. 
And so what they started to do in that culture was they would build the doors, they would enclose the doors of the synagogues or the temples, and they would actually make them very small. And so when you still, for instance, in Bethlehem or at places, if you go to, the, uh, to Israel today, many of the, the temples that have withstood the test of time or the synagogues that are there actually have a doorway that you have to bend down and kind of walk through like this till you get in. What do they call that entryway? They call it the eye of the needle. They call it the eye of the needle because what they didn't want, they didn't want the enemy to be able to ride in and destroy the synagogues first. So they, they made it a very hard place for them to get into and a protected place. So Jesus could have been saying, it's more difficult for a camel to get down on its knees and find a way to get through the eye of a needle. He's saying it's not impossible. Nothing's impossible with God. It's just very challenging when you have a lot, when you own a lot, when you possess a lot and your focus is on possession. It's very hard for your focus to also be on the kingdom of God. It's a challenge. So God calls some of you. Some of you are blessed with that challenge. God has given you resource. And in our culture, in our world, you're considered rich. God is saying, I want to make you a generous person. He's saying, because it's going to be hard for you to be kingdom-minded when you have so much. It's going to be a challenge for you to be able to do that. But the solution is generosity. The solution agreed. And the benefit is that generosity brings joy. True generosity brings joy, and it points you towards worshiping God. My wife has a, a tooth that needs a crown, um, and it's $1,000, and we don't have coverage on that. So when you get that news, it's always exciting. Nobody, in, I'll say this, no one on the planet takes better care of their teeth than my wife, and yet for some reason, I don't get the cavities, and she does. So it's just not, it's one of those not fair things in life. Um, but she needs a crown. It's going to cost $1,000. We were talking about this my little girl, Julia, heard about, she's seven, she heard about this, and so we got home, and um, she came, she had her envelope that she keeps up in the cabinet, and she had $21 in her envelope, but she had another $30 somewhere, and she wanted to offer her $51 towards mom's crown, and we heard her talking about this later with someone else, and she told them, yeah, I'm going to help pay for it, I'm going to pay for like half of it. <laughs> and she said, well, well maybe, a, maybe a quarter of it. She was working the math there in her mind. But uh, the interesting part, we got to channel that money uh, towards friends that are adopting because we saw she had joy. She wanted to be generous with her money. And uh, we didn't want it to go towards my wife's crown. We wanted it to go towards something that she would feel was more of a blessing. But the interesting part about it is my, my little girl's seven right now, and she's just going through a rough stage. It's just one of those inward focused, yeah, lots of whining. And, but I never saw as much joy on her face and coming from her heart when she wanted to be generous. Like, we had this window of joy. So I was like, do you have anything else you want to give away, honey? Just encourage this. We'll just bless it and encourage it. Keep on going. But when being generous gives joy, it connects us with the heart of God. And I want you to try this for a minute. Close your eyes with me for just a moment. I want you to picture the face of a greedy person in your mind. Just picture the face of a greedy person. Now I want you to picture the face of a generous person. Which one looks happier? <laughs> Look up at me. Let me tell you. It's the one who's free. It's the one who's free. Be sure of this. If you want to be free from the love of money and possessions, then you need to start giving it away. And it loses its grip on you when you start to be generous and honor God and give it away. 
So God's made it possible to get rid of this idol of greed and possessions by replacing it with generosity and simplicity. And then the third point is this. I refuse to worship idols by replacing pride and power with humility and grace. By replacing pride and power with humility and grace. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but they're from the world. Pride is the problem behind the idols of success, fame, power, or control. And this temptation to worship the idol of ourselves has been around since the beginning again. And I want you to remember what Satan said to Eve in the Garden of Eden when, she, when he was tempting her to disobey God and to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, you'll be like God. You'll be an idol. You'll have position and power like God. Pride in our own achievement tempts us to use our status to build our own ego. And that's called egotism. And many have found the seduction of success, fame, and control or power is so short-lived and so fast-fading. Listen to this quote from Madonna. She says this, My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. It is always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I became somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody every day. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. People use all of their means to get success, and then once they have it, many times they self-destruct because either they found out that they didn't want it or they found themselves tragically disappointed once they got it. And many people in our culture become success and fame and control addicts. They don't abuse alcohol, but they abuse their own lives. They don't abuse sex, but they abuse their, their own hearts. And the promise of success is that having it will make good things happen in your life. That's the promise of control. If you can manipulate and control the success and the outcome of your own life, you'll, everything will be good. And in an effort to prove oneself or up one's image or have a little bit more control, people go crazy trying to perfect or impress others with their actions. But the problem is that you can't maintain your high and you have to continually feed your self-esteem with more success or more uh, power or more pride and you find yourself in this grieving cycle. Can you put this slide up? Here's the cycle. It starts with achievement and activity. This is the cycle of grief for a person who's driven by success or by power or control. You achieve and you do all this activity and then you find your identity in all the hard things or the things that you just achieved and worked hard for. And that leads you to drive for more because that, that identity is short-lived. Like, I was successful at this for a moment or for that week or for that month, or for that year, I was named this person for that year. But what do I got to do next year? I got to work harder. I got to achieve more. And so that drives us to further find our identity in the next achievement, all the while hoping to be loved and accepted, because that's what we all long for, hoping to find love and acceptance by people around us in that uh, achievement and activity. And it just leads to a cycle of grief, because we're always grieving the fact that we can never stay there like Madonna said, it drives me for more. I, I became something, but now I need to continue to be something. And you're only as good as your last achievement, right? And that's why we grieve when we're in that cycle. Let's look on to the next slide. This is a healthy cycle, a cycle of grace. And the cycle of grace says this, it starts with acceptance. Because of what Jesus did for me, I'm accepted and loved by God. That's my ultimate fulfillment is found in that. I don't need to work for anything else, so I, I start by knowing I'm accepted and I feel fulfilled out of the gate. 
because God loves me and accepts me. My identity is founded in him and that pushes me on to a life of fruitfulness for God. That pushes me on to a life of blessing, to a life where I'm able to be significant and humility whispers to us, I want you to know that you're significant. Grace shouts, God says I'm significant. And then in humility, we can live our lives without pride and ego and it whispers behind us, you know that you're significant because of what Christ has done for you. Adopting humility, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So here's the conclusion this morning. God invites you and I to replace our idols, to make him the source and the center of our life. And he desires our response to him to be expressed through intimacy with him, generosity with him and with others, and humility that lives out a life of making God famous. But I want you to remember this morning that tearing down idols is not your final goal. It's not just getting that idol out of your life. If you try to just pull an idol out of your life and not replace it with something, you will run right back to it. I promise you, you will. We tear down idols so that we can experience the fullness of Christ in our hearts and in our lives, that our meaning comes from him. When there are parts of our hearts that are consumed with idols, we can't be consumed by God. And God asks us to replace our idols with Christ's love. He says, I want to have a personal, intimate, fulfilling relationship with you that you know I'm your source for life. There's a verse that immediately precedes the verse that we've been looking at today, and it's 1 John 2.15. It's not in your outlines. I just want you to listen to it. It says this, Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. When you're in love with the world, you can't be in love with God. You're loving the created instead of the creator. And God says idolizing the things of this world will never fill you with his love. And he knows that his love is the only thing that can satisfy you. He knows that his love is the source of your life. So God gives us these first two commandments and he makes a big deal about them with us. Why does God make these the lead-off hitters in defining his relationship with us? Why does he do that? I believe it's God's way of saying to us, don't miss out on my love for you. Put me first and I will satisfy every need of your heart and of your life. You won't ever need to run to any other source when I become your source. I once heard someone say, about this verse, 1 John 2.16, that you can trace all sin in your life back to one of these three idols. So what I want to encourage you this morning is trace the trail of your sin that you struggle with. Trace it back because it will probably lead you to the thing that you struggle with worshiping instead of God. If you question which of these might be an idol for you, trace the trail of your sin, of what you struggle with. Trace it back and see where it leads you to. If you've discovered an idol or a dangerous temptation that you need to replace, it could be the source of a lot of things that are keeping you from having intimacy and experiencing God's full measure of love in your life. There's a piece of paper that's in your worship guide today. It just looks like this. Would you take it out for a moment? It's a plain piece of paper. In the next few moments, I want you to identify which of these three idols could possibly have become an idol for you that you need to replace today. No one's going to look at this. I just want you to write it on here. Maybe you want to write some of the sin that goes along with it today. And here's why. I want you to mark it down. And then during this next song in a few moments, we're going to take communion. 
and you can just get up from your seat, and you're going to walk to the front to receive the elements. And when you get to the front, I want you to just tear it up. Just rip it up. Throw it in the basket. It's your way of saying, I'm tearing down an idol that's been taking your place in my life, God. And then I want you to pick up the communion elements and to take them with you back to your seat, and we'll all take communion together then. And when you take those communion elements, it's as if you're declaring that Christ is now your only source of life, that you're not going to run to these things anymore, but that Christ is the source of your life. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the depths of your love for me today. I thank you that we can stand with confidence before you and approach you with confidence and not question whether or not you're going to accept us. But we know that with you, with your grace, that you accept us. In the middle of our idol worship, in the middle of our sin, you say, come to me. But then you say, don't stay that way. God, you want us to be able to tear down these idols so that we can truly know you as the center of our lives, so that we can truly experience the fullness of your love, your forgiveness, and your grace. Today, God, that's how we come to you. We ask you to be the center. We ask you to be the source. We tear down the idols that distract our heart from you, and we place you back on the throne of our lives. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Just going to ask that in these, during this next song, you bring your paper to the front, you tear it up, drop it in the basket, pick up the communion elements, take them back to your seat with you, and at the end of the song, we'll take communion together. Be the fire 
Jesus. 